I'm going to ask the rest of you to simply flip a page to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The first time I was exposed to what I want to call the charismatic gift of tongues was my senior year in college. I roomed with three other roommates, two of whom were charismatics. They attended a local Vineyard Fellowship, and if you're familiar with Vineyard Fellowship, you're familiar with the name John Wimber. One of Wimber's fellow pastors from a church further south than where I went to school was sent up to our college and my roommates asked me if I would go with them to this seminar that was on how to speak in tongues. We were told first off as we gathered together maybe 20, 25 students in this room by this pastor that Tongues were a gift that God intended for all of his children to have, not the physical organ, but the gift of tongues. We were told that tongues were a demonstration of the baptism of the Spirit and that we need to pray that the Spirit would baptize us. And they gave us some instruction from the book of Acts, and we were told some very simple things. Number one, we were to relax. And we needed to let the Holy Spirit take control of our physical tongue. We were told that we were not to think any conscious thoughts at all except to ask the Lord to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with the gift of tongues. We were told that we needed to have childlike faith to believe that God would in fact answer our prayer And then we were told that we needed to surrender to the Spirit when he came upon us. We were told that we were to open our mouths and to speak in round vowel sounds. We were to begin to release, if you will, the sounds that come, I still remember him saying this, the sounds that come not from your mind but from your spirit, man. And then we were told that the more we did it, the more ardently we believed it. The more we practiced, the more comfortable we would become. And then interestingly, at the end of his study, he told us that we were to pair off. We were to go outside, to sit somewhere together with whoever you're going to do this with, and we were to practice with one another. Now, I didn't really have much of a theology of the Holy Spirit at this point in my life, and it seems strange to me though, even at this point, that one would have to learn what amounts to a spiritual gift. It certainly didn't seem to square with the way I read the book of Acts, though I couldn't deny that the gift of tongues was there. I didn't see anybody practicing. I didn't see any admonition to anyone to speak in round vowel sounds and and essentially put their minds in neutral. It was two years later at a small Christian school where I was teaching sixth grade, that I had the privilege of having two sons whose, two boys I should say, who were sons of two fathers who were real higher ups in in the Foursquare church. They were international leaders of the Foursquare denomination. 
One of those sons raised his hand one morning as I was about to begin praying for class, and he wanted to know, Mr. Witt, Mr. Witt. And he stopped me. I said, yes, Timmy, what? How can we never pray in tongues in here? This kid was super Tom Sawyer blunt. I love that about him. How can we never pray in tongues in here? And I, not really knowing how to answer such a question, said to him, well, tell me about that. How do you, how do you, how do, you do that? And he, he said, oh, it's, it's easy. He says, we practice every night around the dinner table. My dad leads us in exercises to learn how to do this. He just tells us, you know, Timmy, you've got to stop thinking stuff. You've got to ask God for the gift. You've got to believe like a child that God will give it to you. And then you've got to open your mouth, begin to speak in round vowel sounds, listen not to your mind but to your spirit, man. And if you really have enough faith, you will in fact receive the gift and you can begin to pray in your own private prayer language. Almost word for word, it was the same teaching. Just for kicks, yesterday I typed into Google, you can Google it, how to speak in tongues. And the first site I clicked on, when I looked at how to do it, it was the same thing. Except at the very end, this man added one more caveat, and that is you cannot question. When you begin to speak in tongues, you cannot question that this is from anyone but God. And I thought, man, that is super dangerous. Why do Christians need to be taught how to speak in tongues? We certainly see that nowhere in the text of Scripture. It always bothered me. Why is it that we seem to find the gift of tongues only being expressed, maybe only is too strong of a word, but significantly being expressed in, in a few select types of churches? Why is it that Assemblies of God get this gift and Foursquare gets this gift and Vineyard gets this gift, the Toronto Blessing gets this gift? They get this gift up at Bethel Church in Reading, but no other churches by and large. I mean, is there not one Spirit-filled Baptist? Is there not one spirit-filled Presbyterian who truly has the Spirit of God, who, who longed for this gift, and are the rest of us simply just cut off and, and, and destined then to the, the lower tiers of Christianity? I've always wondered why it is that in these churches that the gift of tongues is made so much of, but you hardly hear every, anything ever about the gift of interpretation. If tongues is, in fact, a personal prayer language, where is that concept developed in any of the, of, of the prayer passages and scriptures? How come Jesus says nothing about this? How come every prayer we read in scripture can be understood as a normal language? These things troubled me, and I didn't have yet the biblical background to be able to answer any of those questions. But we have been considering, if you're new here or visiting today, you, 
we've been considering the so-called gift of tongues, and we're in part four of a four-part series, so I apologize for that, but you can catch the rest online. We've been asking this question, though. Is the gift of tongues or the gift of languages still operative in the 21st century? You know, if you were here last week, that I told you I, I, I don't think so. It is my conviction that they do not exist in the world today, that God is not, again, limited in the way that he can do things, but that he is not doing things this way at this point in time in this dispensation of history. I believe the gift has ceased. This is why we send missionaries to missionary school. This is why we translate the scriptures into various language. Again, I don't think there's anything in the Bible that compels us to view this any other way There is one legitimate biblical gift of tongues, and that is speaking known foreign languages fluently as a gift because you've never studied them. Just by way of quick review, this gift was given for very specific reasons. It was given as a judgment upon unbelieving Israel. It was to provoke Israel to jealousy as as God now was going to speak to the nations in their own tongue. Salvation was now going to the Gentile as well as the Jew. And so we see, secondly, that this signified progress in God's redemptive plan as the gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. We also saw that the gift of languages signified a transition from the old covenant to the new. That it authenticated the apostles, their ministry and their message. How were people to know that that you should listen to Peter or to Paul or to John? How were people to know that they were actually sent from God? Well, God gave them miraculous gifts for a season so that the truth and the apostles' doctrine would be believed and it could be anchored as a foundation and the church could grow upon it. And finally, we we learned that tongues were revelatory. The true gift of tongues was exercised really as a missionary gift. It was the ability to, to speak the truth of the word of God to people in a language that you did not know. I still think it's one of the coolest things ever. I wish I had the gift. Wouldn't it be dynamite to just be able to step into some culture and and be able to speak the truth of, of the word of God in a tongue that you did not know? The point is this, that this gift was given specifically, it was designed for a very specific purpose, and now that that purpose has been fulfilled, the gift passes off the scene. Now, You're living with your head in the sand if you don't know that not everybody would agree with my assessment, all right? This has been a battleground for the church. Some still believe this gift is operative, and they might, as I said last week, be able to agree with me on the things that I said about the gift of tongues in Acts, but they say when it comes to 1 Corinthians, it's a whole other matter altogether. They teach that that there are two different types of tongues, and that, that is something that we need to ask in a preliminary matter. Are there two gifts of tongues? Are there two distinct things? The one that's a legitimate language and the other that is some uh, heavenly speech that, 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 that is non-linguistic. It is, it is almost 
round vowel sounds being attached together, working their way out. It's nonsensical, not understood by the, by the speaker. Well, there's no question, right, from Acts 2 how clear that was. It's explicit that these were foreign languages. And while many continuationists, those who believe that that these gifts still exist today in the church or should, would agree that on the day of Pentecost they were languages, they want to argue that the gift of tongues in Corinthians is a different context in which they were not languages but a personal prayer gift from God to speak a heavenly language as as a form of personal worship. And the question is, is this conclusion justified? Should we understand that the tongues in 1 Corinthians is different than the tongues spoken of in Acts? My answer to that question is no. They would say yes. And I do want to say this, that the burden of proof, frankly, is on those who claim that they're different. It always seems to be put to the cessationist to prove that the gift ceased. I think the evidence swings the other way, where it's really on the continuationist to say, no, the gift that we see in Acts, the gift that we see in 1 Corinthians still continues today. Consider how similar these two passages are, the one in Acts 2 and the one in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. In both passages, tongues are spoken of as a gift of the Holy Spirit. In both passages, This gift is one which both apostles and non-apostles receive the gift. In both passages, the exact same terminology is used. In both Acts and 1 Corinthians, the gift is described as a language which can be understood and therefore interpreted. That's not a small point, my friends. You you cannot translate a non-language. Does that make sense? Both passages, the gift of tongues is revelatory. That is to say, it is connected with the gift of prophecy. Foretelling, there I said it again, it is true that prophecy with a capital P is foretelling at times the word of God. You're talking about future. But the gift of prophecy in both accounts, office of a prophet or a preacher, you're forthtelling the word of God, and, and, and that is connected directly to the gift of tongues, as we shall see even in the book of 1 Corinthians, not just the book of Acts. Here's an interesting fact. Luke and Paul often ministered together. They knew each other well. You remember when we studied Philippians, Luke is, is there with Paul at times on house arrest. He's, he's, he's meeting with Paul during that time. It's instructive to know that the book of Acts was written after the book of 1 Corinthians. Think about that for a minute. Knowing Luke's penchant for detail, would he, do you think, have written this detailed account in Acts 2 describing exactly what this gift is? Would he have written that about Pentecost all the while something utterly and totally different was going on over in Corinth? somehow the gift given at Pentecost now had morphed into a totally different sort of thing. You know this if you've ever taken a class and 
how to study the Bible, you know that it's a good practice when you come to texts that are unclear to try and understand the less clear text by a more clear text. Acts 2 is crystal clear about what tongues is, what that gift is. I would contend that we should understand very clearly the Corinthians passages in light of the Acts passage. The Acts passage is not ambiguous at all. Now, my hope today and the time we have remaining is to show you that it's best to understand that the gift in Corinth was no different than the gift at Pentecost. It was a gift of languages. There was a problem at Corinth, wasn't there? If you know 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a church that that is challenging. And one of the problems that they had written Paul about, undoubtedly, was the misuse of spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues. What is written in chapters 12 to 14 is given as a corrective for the way that, that the Corinthians were abusing this gift. There were people in the church at Corinth who were using the the true gift of tongues, this spirit-given language, as a means of asserting their spiritual superiority. And things undoubtedly in the church were super chaotic. You had people talking out of turn. You had people talking over each other. You had all these languages going on as, as people were playing a spiritual game of king of the mountain and people climbing over each other to try and say, Look at me. Beloved, that's not what the church is about and that's not why your spiritual gifts were given to you. Self-promotion and selfishness have no place in the church of Christ. And it's interesting to think about, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that 1 Corinthians 13 is placed strategically between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14? And that's not just something that was done because, you know, somebody was trying to count, like 13 comes after 12. No, there's intentionality to what Paul is writing when he writes 1 Corinthians 13. Chapter 12 deals with spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 deals with spiritual gifts. And in between both of those is a chapter devoted to love. In the original context, there was no bride, there was no groom, there were no wedding bells, there was no unity candle. In fact, it was just the opposite. There was utter disunity because of the the, the mistaken and false use of these gifts. And Paul's trying to bring remedy to it, saying, what are you thinking? I've just ruined every wedding from here on out, haven't I? You're never going to hear that passage the same. What reigned in Corinth was disunity and selfishness. And so that great romantic chapter of love was actually written as a much-needed rebuke. Anybody in here ever been to the Big Trees Grove outside of Forest Hill? It is the northernmost collection of sequoias in the world. They have no idea, frankly, how it got from down in Sequoia National Park up here. It's really cool. It's only 25 miles outside of Forest Hill. You really ought to go someday. 
a great picnic spot. When you go into the Big Trees Grove, there are these big trees. That's why it's called Big Trees Grove. And, and when you see those big trees, you're astonished because these sequoias are, are just massive. There were six of them at one time. Now there are only four standing. The other two have fallen. But it's still a, a fantastic place to go. We are going to take a path all the way through three chapters of Scripture, like we're walking through the Big Trees Grove. We're only going to be able to pull over to look at the sequoias, okay? So, so if I don't answer your question today, if you've got an issue you want to take up, let's talk. But we are going to go see the sequoias in chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 12 is going to give us the general principles concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is going to help us understand the motive for the use of those gifts. And chapter 14 is going to specifically address the use of the gift of languages and the supremacy of the gift of prophecy. We'll talk about those things. First Corinthians 12. We're not even going to read every verse, but we're going to pick up some verses along the way. So you're going to have to work hard here to, to keep up. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute isles, however you were led. They had come out of paganism. As we mentioned before, paganism oftentimes is marked by this, this kind of speaking in tongues that's, that's gibberish, bada bada type stuff. They had come out of that And now he says in verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. What we learn from this, and he speaks about it, by speaking about the triune God. He speaks of the Spirit. He speaks of the Lord Jesus. He speaks about God the Father. He says they're all involved in this, and these gifts have been given to God's people. But there are varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, same Spirit, same Lord, same God, who works all things in all. Look down at verse 13. But by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now that verse explicitly says that every Christian, every true believer in Christ has in fact been baptized by the spirit. We have been baptized with the spirit. We have been made and, and, and baptized into the church, all by that same spirit. And the point is this, that every Christian possesses the spirit. Every Christian has been baptized, unified with Christ, unified with the church. Every Christian has the indwelling spirit, and therefore every Christian has spiritual gifts that are empowered by that Holy Spirit. It's also clear that not all have the same gifting. That's clear, right? We just read 
in those earlier verses, we kept reading the word, verse four, varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. You look down to verse 29 and 30, it makes the same point. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Everybody has the spirit who's in Christ. Everybody also has the power to manifest the gift they've been given by the Spirit, but those gifts are distinct. Different people, different gifting, same God, but the emphasis again is unity amidst individuality. Look at verse 11. But each but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. The Spirit of God is sovereign over the divvying up of gifts, if you want to think about it, about the distribution of gifts. The Spirit of God gives those gifts, whichever gifts he determines, to distinct people for distinct purposes, but the end all of it is unity. And so he gives us an illustration of the human body, doesn't he? In verses 14 to 26, he says, look, because God made you an arm, you cannot say to the tongue that I, I, I don't need you. Now, your tongue needs your arm, and your arm needs your tongue. And, and, and a hand and a foot, they need each other. And some, some gifts are speaking gifts. They're a little more public. Other gifts are serving gifts. Peter nicely divides them into those two categories. And, and the, the speaking gifts cannot say to the serving gifts, hey, we don't even know who you are. We don't care. If you can't speak, if you can't teach, if you, can't, if you don't have a word of knowledge, if you can't speak in a foreign language to reveal the word of God, well, then you're just sort of a second-tier Christian. No, Paul says we need them all. We need from the greatest to the least. We need all the gifts. They all come from God. They're all given to the church for a purpose. There should be no division in our midst at all. But we're to have the same care for one another, he says. Gifts were never given to exalt self. They were never given to serve self. And it's only our highly individualized Christianity that would even see it that way. Gifts are given as an expression of God's goodness for the building up of the unity of the church. And as I said, Look at, look at the emphasis here. Verse 4, it is the same spirit. Verse 7, it is a common manifestation from the spirit. Verse, uh, well, if I skip over to chapter 14 and verse 3, I'm jumping ahead of myself there. I should have said verse 9, <laughs> it's the same spirit. Verse 11, one and the same Spirit, verse 13, for by one Spirit. Why does he keep saying this? By one Spirit, the same Spirit, that Spirit that's given to every believer. Because the point is, again, beloved, that we have been baptized, unified with, 
brought into fellowship with Christ, brought into fellowship with one another. We have a common spirit, a common life. We've all been given different gifts for the purpose of building that commonality and building ourselves up as one body. And here here is the point, really, of chapter 12, and you'll find it in verse 7. But to each one, there's the individuality, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. He's talking there about a spiritual gift. He's given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? It is for the common good. This is true in the church, and beloved, if I can say this to you, just to give you a little something for free, this is true of you in your life. For Paul says you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. There is a God who created you. He owns you. There is a God who gave his only begotten son for your soul. He has a right to your life. And it would do you well to begin to speak like the Apostle Paul who says, Christ, who is our life. You belong to Jesus. Everything that you are, everything that you possess, every spiritual gift you've been given, every earthly good thing you own is for the purpose of others. We do not think this way. My house, my food, my car, my time, my thoughts, my this and my that. Lose it. Right on the front end, if, anyone, if any man would be my disciple, if anyone would come after me, he must begin right here. What is it? You must deny yourself. You're just done with yourself. My life's not about me anymore. Your life's not about you. It's about Christ. And it's no different in this realm of spiritual gifts. The whole purpose of the gift was for the edification of the whole for the common good. I'm just going to read them to you. You can follow along if you'd like. Chapter 14. Beginning in verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks, note this, to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Not to himself. Speaks to men for edification. Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies what? Edifies the church. Now I wish that you had all spoken in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. Why? Unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Verse 12, so also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified, if they can't understand you. That's his point. Verse 26, What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. 
Here's the summation of it all. Let it all be done for edification. Here's the point. The emphasis of chapter 12 is that we are one people in one faith under one God by one Holy Spirit. We have been brought into the family. We have been comprised as the body of Christ with him as our head. We seek to live in that body for the good of the other, to utilize the gifts that God has given us so that we might grow up unto him who is the head. So let me just pose a simple question. What are you doing with your spiritual gift? And how committed are you to use the gift that God has given to you for the building up of the body of Christ? Now, that, that is another discussion perhaps. Perhaps you're not really aware what your, your gifts, gifting is, and that's a good discussion to have, but that is outside of our purview today. The point is we should belong to the church, serve in the church. We seek to build up the church with the gifts that God has given to us. This church isn't about me and my preferences. It is about others and their spiritual health. Now, before we move on to chapter 13, I want to establish a couple of things just by way of review as they relate to the gift of tongues. Number one, we see the believers in Corinth, including Paul, he'll, he'll tell us this later in chapter 14, that they possessed the legitimate gift of speaking foreign languages. They also had in their midst those who were gifted with interpretation. We're told that. Number two, not all believers receive the gift of tongues, and therefore that Pentecostal teaching that tongues is God's will for every spirit-bought believer, you, you've got to understand that, that that's false. That's not true. You don't need to walk around anymore feeling like you're on a second tier because you haven't experienced what they say you need to experience. That is against Scripture. Every spiritual gift, including the gift of tongues, is intended for others for the building up of the body. And I want to make one other side note, and it's this. Look down at verse 28. Paul here is going to rank the revelatory gifts. Actually, verse 29. I'm sorry. I, I was right. Verse, I was right the first time. Surprise. Verse 28, and God has appointed in the church, note this, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations. What's the very last one on the list? Tongues. Paul is... de-emphasizing the importance of tongues. They ranked down the list. And I think he'll tell us why in chapter 14. It may have been because he knew they were going to pass. I don't think that was fundamentally it. I, I'll just give it to you. I think fundamentally the reason he, he, he diminishes them in importance is because they're so ponderous. Can you imagine trying to reveal the word of God in a foreign language? I come in here this morning and I'm going to speak Swahili. Well, Paul will tell us later, can't do that unless you have an interpreter. 
And so we bring up the guy with the gift of interpretation. I start speaking Swahili, and after I get about five words out of my mouth, he interrupts me and begins to, to translate into English all that I just said. I gotta wait for him to stop. When he's done, I make my next half a, half a phrase. And then he, he interprets. You can see this is highly inefficient, highly ineffective when it has to go through a translator, somebody who can interpret. On the day of Pentecost, it did not need to be interpreted because the people were hearing them speak in their own languages. They were the interpreter of all that was being spoken. All right, chapter 13. We don't get very far into this chapter before we bump into something. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noising gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, Pentecostals want to assert from this verse that there is some, this kind of heavenly language, an angelic tongue. If I speak with the tongues of angels to justify their ecstatic speech. And again, I've got to say it again, brothers and sisters, I, I am not out here to... to, to to draw some sort of hard line about us versus them. I have great friends in the charismatic church. My heart is concerned for some of the practices that they engage. There are many reasons to delight over the sincerity of their faith, the earnestness which with, which with they serve the Lord, the zeal they have for evangelism. There are a lot of good things, all right? So don't, don't get me wrong here. But I do think they're wrong here. And it's loving to say so. Paul's point here is not to say, hey, look, there are tongues of angels and you really ought to learn to speak them. That's not at all the point of the passage. The point of the passage is you need to exercise love in the use of your gifts and quit being so selfish and self-promoting. That's the point he's trying to make. But what he says when he begins here about angelic tongues, uh, we could ask the question, Do they exist? I want to make three observations about verses 1 to 4. First, what he's written here, he's writing in hypotheticals. He's not writing about things that are true to his experience. He's talking about what ifs. Right? Look at it. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries, is that possible? It's not possible. He's not saying that someone can actually have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries. He's, he's talking something hypothetical. He's talking actually in hyperbole. He says, I can have, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all all faith, so as to remove mountains. But I don't have love, that's the point, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, do you see how extreme he's being? He's, he's painting this hypothetical picture. And he says, if I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. The, the, the three points are these. One, he's writing in hypotheticals not realities. He's not teaching here that there are angelic languages and we should learn them. He's saying, even if I, if I could speak better than a man, if there were such a thing, 
I, I, I could put that this way. If, if I fly on the wings of Delta or on the wings of the wind, does it really matter unless I arrive at my destination? Now, am I saying there are wings of wind, that wind has wings? No. I'm giving you a hypothetical to make a point, and I think that's all Paul is doing here. I don't think he's saying there are angelic languages. It's hypothetical, it's hyperbole, and if that doesn't do it for you, every angel ever recorded in Scripture at all times and in all places is speaking a language that can be understood. Paul is not elevating some sort of heavenly speech. He's not commending to the Corinthians that they, they speak angelic. He's saying, listen, whatever gifts you have, no matter how pronounced they are, if you do not use them as an act of self-sacrificing love for others, they're worthless. In fact, he gets more personal than that. He says, not only are they nothing, you're nothing. You, you account for nothing. You gain nothing, he says. You are nothing at the end of verse 2 and verse 3. You exist for others. I exist for others. We exist for the church. The gift of tongues was for public consumption, like every other gift. Every gift was given for the purpose of building up the church in love. Not spiritual one-upmanship. There's no place in the Christ church for that. And the Corinthians had a real problem with it. They had a real problem with pride. You remember Paul's words in, in chapter 4 and verse 7 to the Corinthians where he warned them against arrogance, and he says to them, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you would not received it? And that's exactly what they were doing, as though somehow their giftedness made them something. Look at verse 8. We're going to skip down to verse 8 where Paul is going to make the point that these sign gifts, these miraculous gifts will, will at some point come to an end. All of these gifts, as I said earlier, are revelatory. The gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues and languages, the gift of knowledge. The question is when. Let's read it together. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The question isn't whether these gifts will be done away. The question is when, and as you might imagine, that is a, that is a hot topic. Paul tells us when. It's when the perfect comes. And if you can provide some exegetical solution that's watertight, you can do the Christian world a lot of favors, I'll tell you that. The word perfect is translated variously. It can, it can mean perfection. It can also, and is commonly translated, mature or complete. And so some have taken that to mean that what he meant by the perfect is the revelatory gifts, apostleship, prophets, people who speak directly, revealed truth from God, 
those who speak in tongues in foreign languages, truth that was revealed to them from God, all of those, all of those, those, those gifts, those revelatory gifts would pass off the scene <clears throat> because the canon of Scripture was completed. That's one view. Others see it as coming at the return of Christ, and undoubtedly, they will cease at the return of Christ, to be sure, and this text is very clear about that. There's language in here about being fully known, just as I have, fully knowing, just as I've been fully known. There's, there's talk in here about seeing in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. There are those who take this to refer to the eternal state, to heaven. You're looking at me like, yeah, well, are you going to solve it? And my answer is, well, probably not, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you what I think is, is the best take on this. It is clear, isn't it, in this text, and this is the point I'm really trying to make, that these gifts were spoken of as definitely ceasing. There was a point when they were going to pass from the scene. The only question is when. And this text certainly teaches that these gifts could last until the return of Christ. I'll acknowledge that. There's nothing definitive in Scripture about the timing of the cessation of these things. But when one looks at the purpose of tongues, the nature of those tongues as languages, I think it's very likely when you begin to look particularly at history that these gifts began to wane at the end of the apostolic era after the church had put down roots and had grown up to a maturity. You guys know this who are gardeners. When you put a plant in, you have to do all kinds of things and working the soil and putting in all kinds of additives to make sure that enough fertilizer is there. You don't want to shock the plant in that, in that new, new stage, in that new planting when it's young and tender. You, you carefully protect it from the heat. God was through these gifts, revealing himself prior to the revelation and the completion of the canon, he, he was treating the church, if you will, tenderly like a newborn plant. But once some roots had gone down and the scriptures had been completed, the church now grew to an extent where it no longer needed those signs that were given to mark out the apostles. It no longer needed revelatory gifts. We have the word of God. We have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Which is why when it comes to the gift of tongues, we don't hear of them in any New Testament epistles after 1 Corinthians. You'll never hear of them again. You can go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. You're not going to find them. It's why the testimony of church history has been that they They've ceased, really, since the birth of Pentecost, or until the birth of Pentecostalism in the 20th century. As I said last week, it was really around 1901 when, when uh, January 1st. You'll remember when this whole thing sort of, sort of sprouted up about a different kind of tongues. This is why I, don't believe, I believe we don't, don't see the revelatory gifts today. We've completed the canon. The scripture has been given, and it's rendered these gifts obsolete. And the reason is because the church has grown up, which is precisely why Paul goes on to talk about a child in the next verse. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. When I was a child, he's drawing an analogy. I used to speak like a child. 
I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Why does that verse exist here? Why here? Well, contextually, I think he's saying that, look, the church in its youth had, did things in a different way than it does in its adult stage. There were some things needed back here that are not any longer needed in that way. What do we pick up from chapter 13? Well, we learned that Paul's mention of angelic tongues does not establish the reality of such a thing. We learned that love for others is always the motivation that undergirds the use of every spiritual gift, including the gift of tongues. We learned that the authentic gift will one day outgrow its revelatory usefulness. We just don't know when that day is. My contention is that it, it's already happened. When the church matured, when the church had the scriptures in full, there was no longer any need for those revelatory gifts. But in Corinth, that day has not yet come. So hang with me here. All these gifts remain operative in Corinth, as we see in chapter 14. And this should bring it together, I hope. The point of this chapter, the whole of it, is this. Prophecy is superior to tongues. Prophecy is superior to tongues. And when he's talking about prophecy, he is talking again about prophecy with a capital P. Revelation being given from God through gifted individuals to the church. We have the Bible. We don't have that any longer. Direct revelation from God to the church. And it came to those who had the gift of prophecy and those who had it could speak forth the word of God in the vernacular, in the common language, in whatever was being spoken out there in the congregation so that it could be understood. There were people who had the gift of languages who also were prophets who received direct revelation from God to speak it to the church. The problem was that when they spoke it out, they spoke it out in a language that people didn't understand. And that was ponderous. So we have the office of the prophet existing. It does not exist anymore. Just like the office of the apostle does not exist anymore. And we have prophecy, smaller p, as preaching. What I'm doing right now when I open up the text of Scripture in the New Testament is understood as prophecy. I am speaking forth the word of God from what has been written. In their day, it hadn't been written yet. So they were speaking what was directly revealed to them from the Lord. And the Corinthians experienced both capital P and small p prophecy. So we're going to do a very simple thing as we come to this text. Whether my reasoning has been persuasive to you or not, I'm going to read the New American Standard Translation, but I'm going to do it by inserting the word languages every time we bump into the word tongues, and you see if the fog doesn't clear off the mirror a little bit. We have enough of a foundation now, I think, that this will begin to demonstrate. Remember, the priority of gifts in the church was edification. It was to be done in love for others. And, and, and so as the word is being proclaimed, the emphasis of this entire chapter is 
Do the people understand what you are saying? That's really what Paul is getting at. The communication of truth. It's obvious that the communication of truth happens most efficiently and most effectively when you speak the language that everyone understands. So, here we go. You ready? We're going to read the whole chapter. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you might prophesy. We love the word of God in the church. You should desire that you would be able to prophesy. For the one who speaks in a language, a foreign language, does not speak to men, but to God. Why can't you speak to men with a foreign language? Well, if they don't understand you, you're not speaking to them. There's no communication. God understands every language. It doesn't matter what language you speak. God can understand it. The one who speaks in a foreign language does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands. See, that's the issue with Paul. But in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. The man doesn't even understand what he himself is speaking. In fact, Paul is later going to tell us that if you have the gift of languages, you should also pray that God would give you the gift of interpretation so that you can understand what you're saying. Because understanding is what matters. Have I said that enough? Okay, here we go. The one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Do you see that the prophet, when he spoke the word of God, was speaking for others that they might be edified, exhorted, consoled? The one who speaks in a foreign language edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Aha, you say, there it is, edifies himself. God wants us to edify ourselves. There's nothing wrong with self-edification. That's what you do every morning when you pick up your Bible and, and, and you read it. But you do pick it up in English, don't you? Because you can't be edified by what you do not understand. Paul here is not teaching, go edify yourself. He's saying there's a problem with that because the ultimate end, the consummate end of your gift, it stops short. Your gift was given you for others. He who prophesies, on the other hand, edifies the church. I love this. Paul says, now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. Why? Well, unless he interprets, Paul says, so that the church may receive edifying. You see what he's saying? I just want the word of God to be spoken, whether it's in foreign language or it's in the language of the people. The one who can speak in the language of the people is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless that man speaking the foreign language has an interpreter so that the people out there can understand what in the world he's saying. But now, brethren, Paul says, verse 6, if I come to you speaking in in, in a foreign language, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of a teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either a flute or a harp, 
in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is being played on the flute or on the harp? It's just going to be a cacophony of volume and crazy music. It won't make it. You ever, you ever been in a place where that? I, I go into my gym, and there's some guy who goes in there before me, and I'll tell you what, he listens to some music that's oppressive. I can't even make sense of where the melody line's going. It's rough. Paul is saying, you, t- you take an instrument, and you ever, here you go, you ever been to a junior high band concert? Right? I mean, this, this is what he's talking about. If there's no distinction in the notes, if you're not following the music, if it's not articulate music, it's just irritating. The key is that people understand. And so he says in verse 8, if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who's going to prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue, he's talking about your physical organ there, speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. You see, what he's, you see, you see how this, this all fits? If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian. He's talking about the receiver here. If, if I don't know the language, I, I might as well be a barbarian. We, we can't communicate with one another. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. Verse 12, so also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for what? Edification in the church. Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, there's something going on in there, but my mind is unfruitful. Well, what is the outcome then? Even Paul's ready to sum all this up, just like you. Like, get to the point. What are you saying? Uh, He says, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I'm not going to put my brain in neutral. I'm not going to stop listening to my my mind and start listening to my spirit man. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks? since he does not know what you're saying. You come in here and your gift is a, is a tongue. You speak French. You sit down and you start, you start giving thanks to God in French. And the people sitting around you have no capacity to echo your prayer because they have no idea what you're saying. It's French to them. Verse 17, for you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul had this gift. Every apostle had this gift. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others. You see, there's the point again. Rather than 10,000 words in a foreign language that cannot be understood. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants 
But in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And so he's hearkening back to Isaiah 28, a passage we looked at earlier in this series. And he's, again, asserting that it is foreign languages being spoken to, a foreign people speaking a foreign language to his people. And he says, this is a, this is a judgment. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but those to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now, I want you to just skip down to verse 26. Oh, I told you every verse. We're going to do it. We're just going to read through. Verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Here's that cacophony of a bunch of people speaking a bunch of different foreign languages, climbing all over each other, trying to be loud and, and get, their, get their point across that, that they have the greatest gift. And Paul says, if, if unbelievers were to walk into that church, they'd think you're nuts. They think you're mad. Ironically, what did the people in, 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 uh, at Pentecost say about those who are speaking foreign languages? They're drunk. Another parallel between these passages. But if all prophesy, that is revealing the word of God in the, in the common tongue, if all prophesy and an unbeliever, an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of, her heart, of his heart are disclosed. How does God do all that? Through the preaching of his word. So that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What happened? Communication. That's what happened. A church speaking chaotically in a bunch of foreign languages, the conclusion is they're mad. The church speaking forth the word of God in the common tongue, and what do we have? People being converted to Christ and declaring that God is in our midst. What is the outcome then, brethren? Verse 26, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. What he's basically saying is, look, just what you say to your kids, hold it, stop. There's room for everybody here, and we're going to do this differently because God is not a God of chaos. He says, let all things be done for edification. And now he's going to give us, <clears throat> he's going to give us the regulation for tongues, and then we'll wrap this up. He wants to, 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 to regulate it so that it will bring understanding. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be two or three at the most. We're not going to have 17 people stand up and speak of the Lord in a foreign language. You're going to do it two or three at the most, and each one of you is going to go in turn, and you must have an interpreter he says. Verse 28, if there is no interpreter, then you must keep silent in the church 
and let him speak to himself and to God. And again, he's not saying there, this is what you want to do. Just go in your closet and you begin speaking to God. What, what he's saying is you, you, what you have is not profitable publicly. We're not going to use it. He says essentially the same thing about prophets. Let two or three speak. Let the others pass judgment. We're going to skip all the way down now to verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 39, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. If in summary fashion we were to take all three chapters and we were to combine them, or we were to look at them, I guess I should say individually, as a part of a whole, if I was to pick the dominant theme of each, here's what they are. Chapter 12, the gift of tongues, like every other gift, is given for the edification of the whole church. That's the point. It's to edify the whole church. Chapter 13, the use of tongues, like every other gift, is to be motivated by sacrificial and servant love toward others. And chapter 14, tongues were given as a means of divine revelation for the purpose of proclaiming God's word to God's people. And Paul says, look, they're of limited usefulness. Even in Corinth, they were of limited usefulness since it was necessary to interpret before anybody could be edified. Now, if I've understood these things correctly, there can be no doubt that the gift of tongues, as it's described in Scripture, is, has anything in common with what's practiced today in the church. And you all can stop sending me like YouTube videos of the crazy things that you found. I know. I know. If anyone is to, is, is, is to make the case that the gift is still in existence today, you would have to come to the conclusion that the present day expression of tongues is radically different and for radically different purposes. And that is a great challenge for those who want to uphold tongues, to try and demonstrate from the Bible that whatever's going on in their world or in, in, in their church is something that the Bible actually prescribes for believers. And is my heart for them? Yeah, my heart's for them. My heart is for you. The elders' hearts are for you to protect you to help you realize that those miraculous, super miraculous spiritual gifts that have been given to you that seem rather mundane, the evidence of the Spirit in your life that seems rather mundane is supernatural and it's wonderful and we should rejoice and utilize all that God gives us for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Yes? That's the point. What does the Bible teach about the gift of tongues? Well, bluntly, there isn't one. There is the gift of languages. One commentator well made a, made a, made a very well-stated summary of the Bible's teaching, quote, the, the genuine gift endowed a person with the miraculous ability to speak an unlearned foreign languages 
for the sake of proclaiming the word of God and authenticating the gospel message. When used in the church, it had to be translated so that other believers could be edified by the message. That's the point. The point is that God's word would be proclaimed to the nations, that all might know that Jesus saves, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name from Judea even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I am thankful that that message is understood here.